1: The Economist
2: Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Okumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Ahead of Holocaust Memorial Day tomorrow, we look at two new films portraying this historic tragedy and the challenges in doing so. And I consider myself quite the fashionista, but even I couldn't have predicted designer's pick for color of the year. Hint, hint, it's all Beyonce's fault. First up, though. This week, Argentine workers took to the streets to stage a massive strike. They were responding to reforms from the country's new right-wing libertarian president, Javier Millet. Mr. Millet was elected in December amid the country's worst economic crisis in two decades. He promised drastic measures to balance Argentina's budget and whip its economy back into shape.
3: La mitad de los argentinos son pobres y el 10% es indigente. Basta del modelo empobrecedor de la casta. Hoy volvemos a abrazar el modelo de la libertad para volver a ser una potencia...
2: At rallies, he wielded a chainsaw, a symbol of his promise to slash the state. Within 48 hours of taking office, Mr Malay's economy minister announced that he would devalue the currency, slash subsidies, and eliminate more than half of Argentina's government agencies. After the announcements, bond prices in Argentina hit a two-year high. At the World Economic Forum in Davos last week, Mr. Malay thundered about defending the values of the West.
3: Problemas. El capitalismo de libre empresa como sistema económico es la única herramienta que tenemos para terminar con el hambre, la pobreza y la indigencia a lo largo y a lo ancho del todo el planeta
2: to enthusiastic applause.
3: Muchísimas gracias. Y viva la libertad, carajo.
2: But for Mr Millet, spending cuts and deregulation aren't enough. He also wants to strip power from the people that he thinks caused the economic crisis in the first place.
4: Argentina's new president, Javier Millay says that to fix the economy, he needs to break what he calls Argentina's political past, who got the country into this mess.
2: Ana Lankes writes about Latin America for The Economist.
4: And he includes corrupt politicians, their friends in business that rely on contracts with the state, and media groups that rely on advertising from the state into this group. And most importantly, probably, he includes Argentina's self-interested trade unionists in this cast.
2: Anna, we've spoken before about Millay's election promises to gut the Argentine state and introduce some rather extreme free market policies. Now, what is he going to do about these elites?
4: So, since Millay came to power in December, he's put forward a decree which includes a lot of reforms and also what's being called an omnibus bill, which is a gigantic package that has over 600
3: articles con un Estado limitado, que actúa en defensa de la vida, la libertad y la propiedad. And he la
4: says that the purpose of the Omnibus Bill is to free the productive forces of the no nation from the shackles de la de la of the oppressive state.
3: Al de ella. Donde cada uno es libre de trabajar, producir, emplear, comerciar, importar y exportar como considere mejor, no como le dicta un burócrata desde una oficina gubernamental.
4: That bill is now currently being reviewed in Congress. Both of these things, the decree and the bill, have angered a lot of interest groups in the country and some ordinary Argentines too. Most alarmingly, Millet is looking to give himself power to rule by decree for two years and probably no group is more affected than trade unions, as demonstrated by this massive protest on Wednesday. And what's going on with the trade unions? So Millet is proposing a lot of things. He's proposing requiring employees to opt into union membership, which would probably significantly affect the union's finances. He's also proposing to make it much harder to strike. It's estimated that something around 40% of Argentina's 13 million registered workers belong to labor unions. So these trade unions are leading the pushback. And Argentina's largest group of trade unions, which is called the General Confederation of Labor, led a national strike earlier this week on January 24th. They're also fighting back in the courts. So on January 3rd, one court suspended the chapter on labour reform in the emergency decree. And this was in response to a request to an injunction filed by the General Confederation of Labour.
2: Anna, do you think the trade unions need to be broken up?
4: It's, It's complicated. Many of these trade unions are extremely powerful and they're often run like family businesses. For example, the trucker syndicate has had the same boss for 36 years. His name is Hugo Moyano. And Moyano's oldest son, Pablo, who was one of the leaders of the protests on January 24th, is the union's co-chief. He also has a daughter and another son who sit on the board. And he has a third son for whom he created a separate union for toll workers and who then entered Congress. And this family also have run football clubs and they have their own political party. I think what's important to note is that unions in Argentina are not really independent. They're really linked to the populist Peronist movement that has dominated Argentine politics for decades. For example, since Argentina returned to democracy in 1983, the General Confederation of Labour has staged 43 general strikes. But almost two-thirds of those took place under non-Peronist presidents. And today, union leaders really have quite a grip on power over their unions So it's harder in Argentina for an opposition candidate to be elected the leader of a trade union than it is to run for president because of voting rules that are so skewed towards the incumbent. So in Argentina, you have at least three union leaders that have been in power for 50 years and another 10 have ruled for over 30 years. So for a long time, These unions have seemed untouchable. Just think about it. Like Argentina has gone through dictatorships, has gone through lots of different presidencies, but many of these union
2: leaders remain. But Millet seems unfazed. But Anna, if these trade unions are that powerful, is there anything that Mr. Millet can realistically do about it? It's going to be difficult. So Millet is trying to pass a lot of these
4: quite difficult decrees and laws in the first months of his administration, partly because he's still riding on the wave of popularity that got him into power. He was elected with 56% of the vote and his approval ratings are still between 50 and 60%. But Millet does need to get his bill through Congress. And right now, even with the support of center-right parties, he doesn't have a majority there. The context in which Millet is trying to pass these reforms is also really delicate. More than 40% of Argentines today live below the poverty line and inflation is running at 211% annually. In December Argentina took over Venezuela to be the country with the most inflation in Latin America. The mastermind behind many of these economic reforms is called Federico Sturzenegger. He was a central bank president a while back. And he has said that the only way to change Argentina's rotten economic structure is to disarm it and drain it of resources. I don't see that sitting very well with what Millet calls the political caste, So I think in the next few months, we can expect a lot more confrontation, both with the unions and with different elements of the cast.
2: Anna, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Ori.
4: In
1: the trailer for The Zone of Interest, we see a woman, the lady of the house, Hedwig Hoss, showing her mother around a very pretty garden.
2: Andrew Miller writes a Backstory, our a column on culture.
1: The odd thing is that the garden is surrounded by a wall, and from over the wall we hear the sound of a train arriving and human screams. And towards the end of the trailer, there's a brief shot of a man in concentration camp uniform spreading ashes on a flower bed. The Zone of Interest is an ambitious new film by Jonathan Glazer, and The Garden belongs to Rudolf Hoss, and he's the commandant of Auschwitz, the real-life commandant of Auschwitz. And The Wall divides his family home and his garden from the adjacent concentration camp. Every film director who grapples with the subject of the Holocaust faces a daunting and, and possibly insuperable challenge, which is namely to convey the horror knowing that their efforts are bound to seem inadequate and risk seeming disrespectful of the suffering and even indecent. And this goes all the way back to Schindler's List, the landmark film by Steven Spielberg that came out 30 years ago.
3: Kielbasa sausage, cheeses, blugger, caviar. And of course, who could live without German cigarettes? Uh, As many as you can find.
1: Two new films, The Zone of Interest and One Life, offer similar solutions to this challenge, different though they are in other ways. And I think that both of them succeed, at least up to a point. The Zone of Interest takes its setting and the theme of domestic life at Auschwitz, though very little else, from Martin Amis's novel of the same name. It's less a story, though, than a map of a moral void. In the shadow of the crematoria, the Hoss family, which includes five children, lived, as Hedvig says, how we dreamed we would. They enjoy picnics and parties in the garden, looted clothes and bucolic swims in rivers, which are sometimes awash with human remains. The inmates themselves are really scarcely visible in this film. They tiptoe in to the garden occasionally to perform menial tasks such as washing blood from the Commandant's boots. And beyond that, we hear these terrible sounds emanating from beyond the garden wall, which include gunshots and terrible orders, as well as the barking of dogs and cries. And it's a really haunting soundscape, actually, which will stay with people who see the film, I suspect, much more than the actual images on screen. But midway through the movie, you realise with what is I think a complicated kind of relief, a half-guilty relief, that the camera and you, the viewer, will not actually be going over the wall. Instead, Jonathan Glazer, the director, he relies on what you might call the visual shorthand of the Holocaust, the watchtowers, the steam from those trains, to evoke the subject and seems to say, this is as much as we need to show. 30
2: seconds Okay, and you
1: are just... The Zone of Interest is an arty film that's tipped to win an Oscar, or possibly more than one. One Life, by contrast, is an unflashy film, as unflashy, actually, as its protagonist. ...visited
2: Prague. What he found there with thousands of refugees at the mercy of Hitler's imminent invasion.
1: And in this case, he's not a mass murderer, but on the contrary, he's a rescuer. He's the real-life person, Nicholas Winton, a self-effacing British stockbroker who helped spirit 669 mostly Jewish children from Prague to Britain on the eve of the Second World War. And Winton embodies what you could call the banality of goodness, because this feat actually requires as much dogged paperwork and getting visas and so on as it does daring do on the streets of Prague. The director here is James Hawes, and he uses a dual time frame. We see... Winton urgently at work in the 1930s when he's played by Johnny Flynn. And then we meet him again in the 1980s when he's obviously a much older man. And he's played by Anthony Hopkins in the kind of wonderful performance that can make you forget you're actually watching an actor. The climax restages Winton's genuine appearance on That's Life in 1988. It was a British TV show, which on this occasion brought him together with some of the people he had saved.
0: And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton.
1: It's a very moving clip that comes around occasionally on social media and you may have seen. One Life exhibits cinema's bias for redemption over complete desolation. If not for a happy ending exactly, then at least for survival over oblivion. Zone of Interest does not by any means. There's no redemption in that film. But in the question of horror and how to depict it, these two films are alike in their restraint. In One Life, the most heartrending scenes involve desperate partings on train platforms between parents and their children, or Winston in later life, looking at old photos of children who he wasn't able to rescue. And there's really vanishingly little violence in this film. I think they both, in their different ways, stand in a kind of tactful contrast to other previous films that are much more graphic and go so far as to intrude into the gas chambers. The Holocaust now has a vexed and contradictory place in Western culture, and it's widely commemorated in memorials and museums, to the extent that can often seem to be sort of inescapable, but at the same time, It's slipping out of living memory, and as it does so, it is often misrepresented and often even forgotten. It's evoked in political disputes, not least by people on both sides of the tragic events in Israel and Gaza. One recent poll found that one in five young Americans thinks that the Holocaust is a myth. And I suppose I think in this context that we can't assume That the average viewer knows the essential facts, the context that really you need to be aware of to see both of these films. Today, I think that the urgent job of storytellers is to remember and to insist on the victims of the Holocaust, not just the perpetrators or the occasional heroes. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
0: Chrome and chrome-like
2: surfaces seem to be making a comeback in the design world. Cassia Sinclair writes about culture for The Economist and is also a colour expert.
0: Pinterest do annual trend reports and they had noticed something that they called hot metals, which was an appetite for cool silver tones and bold chrome. And also various other people, so Architectural Digest, House Beautiful, and Kaio, which is an online second-hand furniture marketplace, had all picked up on this renewed interest for shiny, metallic, silvery-chrome fixtures and fittings, furniture, lighting, objects. When we look at fashion, silver and chrome are also having a moment. Probably the most prominent example is Beyoncé's Renaissance tour. Chrome and shiny silver surfaces were all over the place. There was a great news story that apparently Beyonce had asked friends, and particularly celebrity friends, to come to the show wearing silver. And her and her backing singers also wore a lot of chrome and silver outfits during the performances. In one moment when she's singing the song Formation, her and the dancers come out wearing these highly reflective, exaggerated, wide-brimmed boater hats and they nod their heads in time to the music and so you get this drobe effect of these brilliantly reflective chrome hats reflecting the lights. These chrome accessories become really an integral part of that performance.
4: Pure yourself.
0: We've got another adaptation from the Mad Max universe. This is the origin story of Furiosa. And as people may remember from the last Mad Max film, Chrome is kind of used as a metaphor, an allusion to a glorious future shiny and chrome becomes this idea that you're going to go to a great technological heaven and so i can kind of think that chrome is part of the aesthetic of the films and so furiosa might have something to do with chrome's return When you look at design history, Chrome has three high points. The first of these, and possibly the most important, is the 1920s, when you have the rise of modernism and the Art Deco movements. And Chrome is really a fantastic, part of this design ethos it's reflective it brings a lot of light and it feels very new so it's used by designers like Siri Morm, who was British but also very influential in America and she loved using reflective surfaces and pale colours and this was something really strikingly different to what had come before. The next high point in Chrome's history is the 1950s, and this is really bound up with the automotive era and particularly with Harley Earl's time as head of the art and colour section at General Motors. He was really influential. And he loved using chrome. It became a real part of the design vernacular of automobiles of the era. And he really stressed its importance. He thought it was something that ordinary people really wanted in their cars, and he thought it was a great selling point. And one of his designers who have worked with him at the time remembers basically being told to lay on chrome with a trowel. The third time that you really see Chrome having a moment in design history is the 1980s. It's part of the brash economic upturns, optimism, and again, you get reflective surfaces. The brightness of Chrome really lends itself to this time. So, as you may have noticed, you've got the 1920s, the 1950s, the 1980s, and this lends itself to the idea that design and interior trends are just cyclical. This is true, but I think that there's something unusual about its return this time. Because if you look at the 1920s, the 1950s and the 1980s, they're all periods when you have great optimism, you have this real excitement about the future. It doesn't really feel like that now. I think people have a lot more anxieties about the future. There isn't a clear vision for the future in the way that there was at those times. And we have political anxiety, there are wars in the Middle East and Ukraine, Sudan, and there's unease about climate change and so on and so forth. So what is it that is making Chrome resonate with audiences and with people now? Something that really got in the way of my research, funnily enough, is the fact that Google's browser is called Chrome, which actually led me to address the problem head on and get in touch with the lead designer of Google Chrome, who's called Glenn Murphy. He was fascinating. He told me the name almost came by accident. It was one of the engineering leads came up with the idea as a kind of placeholder name and they just didn't find anything better. But also it was a little bit tongue in cheek because a lot of the stuff that you get around a browser is called Chrome. Something that Google wanted to do was remove a lot of the fussiness from their browser. So remove a lot of the Chrome. Google Chrome became a tongue in chic allusion to that, and it just stuck. So he was fascinating about that, but I also really liked his take on why chrome, the material, might be having a resurgence. Something that he came up with was people are living in smaller spaces now, and so materials that reflect light and can make spaces seem larger might have something to do with it. We're also in the midst of a real boom in recycling upcycling and second hand which has been a huge boost to secondhand clothing and also flea markets and secondhand furniture so it's impossible to dismiss the idea that Chrome's return in design is about nostalgia and escapism and fantasy but perhaps there's also a possible redemption story in there in that we're thinking and dreaming about a brighter tomorrow, which, like Chrome, will never entirely lose its luster.
2: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is Jonjo Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Larniuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Kadifa. And our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane with extra production help this week from Benji Guy. We'll all see you back here tomorrow for the Weekend Intelligence.